our podcast series, BS on Aerospace and Defense. I'm Pat Hindle, Media Director for Microwave Journal and Signal Integrity Journal, and I'm joined by our hosts, Brian Goldstein, President, Analog Devices Federal, and Vice President of Aerospace and Defense Group at Analog Devices, and Sean Darcy, Director of Aerospace and Defense at BAE. Welcome, guys. Thank you, Pat. Thank you, Pat. We're looking forward to this. Yeah, Yeah, this is going to be great. I'm so happy to be doing this podcast with you guys, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts and debates on different topics that we'll tackle each month. We plan to cover, you know, current topics on aerospace and defense markets, maybe some feedback from listeners, and we may have some guests from time to time. So we'll announce those ahead of time. So first, let's tell the listeners, how did we come up with this name, Brian? (laughs) Well, you got me, Brian, and you've got Sean. And together, uh, you got BS, and that's probably a lot of what we'll be talking yeah, about. Yeah, I think here. we're going to get a lot yeah, of that. Pretty on. fitting. Uh, yeah, you'll, you'll hear a lot of it. A lot of opinions, some useful, some not. Okay, so in this first episode, we're going to take a look at the state of the semiconductor industry from technology and supply point of view. Our sponsors for this podcast are BAE Systems and Analog Devices. BAE Systems pushes the limits of possibility every day. Their technology spans across every domain, from the seas to the far reaches of space. They provide customers with a critical edge, and their mission inspires their employees to change the world. Learn more at BAEsystems.com, where they have a wide variety of job openings. That's BAEsystems.com. Interested in a career in RF and microwave? Analog Devices Aerospace and Defense Business is hiring engineering and manufacturing positions at our Chumsford Mass location, with the most competitive packages in the industry, including a potential sign-on bonus, 401k match of 8%, and a corporate bonus program. Join the high-powered team that is trusted by the Defense Department to create advanced electronics. Email your resume to hiring at analog.com. That's hiring at analog.com. So let's start off with uh, how has the shortage of semiconductors and long lead times affected your business? Well, this is going to be a good one. I'll let Brian go first. Is, is his actual part of the industry supplies mine? So I'll give you the first shot on this one, and then I'll counterpoint it. Yeah, that sounds that <laughs> sounds good because this is where I'm I'm spending a lot of my time lately is is dealing uh, with these long lead times and and the shortage of semiconductors in the market. And so you know, coming out of COVID, uh, long lead times it's become the new normal. Um, the good news is that we are starting to see light at the end of the tunnel. And we're starting to see the beginnings of things loosening up. But, you know, like I said, coming out of COVID, there was a lot of pent up demand that I think accelerated faster than anyone would have expected. A lot of it around the automotive industry, which the volumes are just incredibly high. But even in aerospace and defense, with what's going on in Asia and in the Ukraine, there's been this acceleration of demand and also new design work around modernization of our of our existing platforms but one of the things that's really come out of this is it's really strengthened our relationships with our customers we're not just talking to the buyers anymore we're now talking to ceos who have realized that semiconductors are a critical part of their acquisition strategy and so it's really brought us uh, closer to our customers um we are able to see they are giving us more accurate forecasts, longer forecasts. They're needing, they realize they need to plan further uh, into the future. Um, and so that's helping for our planning. 
And, and as part of our planning and as we're talking to our customers, it's about how do we avoid this happening again and how are we building resilience? So I think Brian covered a lot of it. Um, so I think one of the things that um, our industry may not have been hit as hard in production, mainly because we get to throw the beloved D-Pass card at people. Um, but we did. We had delays as well, right? And we had to, as Brian said, we had to work together with the industry to actually come up with solutions and now plan out for the future. I think two areas that actually it did kind of hurt, at least in, in the aerospace defense industry, was development. We we couldn't get prototype cards. We, we had trouble getting boards, uh, development kits, et cetera, did set us back. That was one of the things that was very difficult. And those people who could answer that and bring that to the fore actually did benefit. Another one I think is it's been a little bit unique, and I think we've seen a more focus of this in our supply chain, is we actually start looking for suppliers, especially in electronics, to have the plans, the resiliency, and now you start evaluating them on their ability to mitigate these kind of problems. They're always, they're probably, this is probably a way of life uh, for us going forward. I don't think this is going to change. We're going to keep seeing these shortages. Um, it's not just electronics, it's all materials, right? Everything has been in demand lately. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because um, when we started to get customers worried about this, aerospace and defense customers weren't the first ones that started because they do buy in advance. They'll buy and they buy in bulk. They'll buy for a whole year. Mm-hmm. And so the time for them to actually get near lying down took longer than some of the other commercial industries. And so while they've been uh, late to the game to come <laughs> to look for parts, they're now at a situation where um, after a year of this, they are having some situations that have that have risen up that we're now dealing with acutely. So ADI has their own internal chip supply for some things. Uh, what platforms do you have and how do you make that make versus buy decision? And does that give you an advantage in the marketplace? Yeah, absolutely. So ADI has has four internal foundries, and but we have a hybrid manufacturing approach. We have capacity to do about, right now we do about 50% of our total volume is internal and 50% of our volume is at external partners. But what's really interesting, as you listen to everybody talk about bringing foundry services and bringing capability back on shore, you hear them talking about five nanometer, three nanometers. 80% of our business is 180 nanometers or greater. Yep. And so a lot of folks are losing sight of that. And the chip sect does cover building capacity for that. But where we're focused right now is bringing capacity again in this hybrid model of um, building capacity internal while working with our partners external. Um, we're actually licensing more processes to be able to bring into our internal fabs so that any product in our portfolio, ideally we would be able to do at multiple fabs. That's, that's the master plan. And so we're investing to do that. Um, and we're already starting to see capacity improvements internally in our own fabs for the work that we've been doing over the last year. And like I said, we are starting to see the fabs in general starting to loosen up, giving us a little bit more than planned capacity. And we expect that to continue through 23. And you bring up a good, a pretty important point, right? Is that um, we also need support onshore for legacy. A lot of a legacy electronics, aerospace and defense, you know, especially in some of the long run programs, we have parts that sometimes are 30 years old. Um, and, and unfortunately, a lot of that has gone overseas, and we are struggling to bring that back. So I'm glad to hear what you guys are doing. Yeah, so you mentioned the CHIPS Act. So how does that affect you, and how are you involved in that process? I'll tell you what, I'll jump on that one first, being from the industry side. Um, you know, looking just across the entire broad 
uh, aerospace and defense industry. I think the CHIPS Act is a very, very good start. Um, you know, people have heard me speak before. Now I like to bring up the fact that TSMC, for example, in Taiwan is only 60 nautical miles from a pretty large Chinese naval base. Um, we actually do very much need to understand that while something may not happen, there's always an economic risk to that. Um, so I think this is a great start. You know, I think we've got some research. Uh, we've got some other initiatives that are uh, allowing us to stand up um, you know, fabs in the United States, but also it's allowing people like you know, Brian's organization and others um, you know, more incentives to bring this stuff back on shore. I, I think there's two things that we have to be careful of. It can't become an academic exercise. We have to keep pushing on this. And also, you know, it's about a $50 billion program, and that's really just probably the tip of the iceberg to really bring the goal of bringing 80% of semiconductor manufacturing on shore is going to require significantly more investment than that. So. Yeah, it's really interesting that he, he, he talked about it can't be an academic, it can't be an ex academic exercise. This needs to be the foundries that come to the U.S., they need to be commercially viable. We need to still be able to compete uh, in the worldwide uh, commercial industries. But this this package is really important. Um, the money has not started to really flow yet. And I described expansion of things that we are doing. We're spending money. We're leaning forward. We're not waiting for the government money, but we are absolutely engaging on it. And things that we, we want to see happen is we want to see upgrades of expansion and uh, construction of, of uh, fabs in the U.S. Um, we want to see... Um, not just around fabs, but it's the ecosystem, it's the mm -hmm. packaging, and, and all the ecosystem that goes around it needs to be brought on shore. Um, like I said, it's not just the newest, sexiest nodes. It's also uh, it's yeah, also legacy. the older, the legacy need nodes that. need to come. Yeah, we, we need that. that. We need to expand capacity. Um, it's not just silicon, right? Gallium arsenide, a, a big part of our mm -hmm. gallium arsenide foundry services are offshore as well. So we need yeah. we're working on that. But then it's integration and packaging. So a big part of this package as, as part of the ecosystem is, is doing things with the semiconductors and creating uh, SIPs and advanced integration, um, advanced uh, heterogeneous integration, as well as full up integrated modules and subsystems. And then bringing all that work to the U.S. requires a uh, talented workforce. So now you're getting into workforce training yeah. and, and education. And so uh, these are things that we're, we're looking at. Um, and again, it's not just aerospace and defense. It's all U.S. infrastructure, communications, right, uh, automotive, uh, as well as healthcare, all require uh, these semiconductors, and you can't be left without them. And you bring up something important, right? The training is, well, I think, I think if I remember correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, five hundred million dollars, which is again just the tip of the iceberg to start training these type of skills to build in the foundries and the fabs. So, training manpower and. Yeah. Also, you've got a packaging, also testing, you know, that's a big part of it. Right. So you did mention heterogeneous integration, advanced packaging. Um, how about DARPA? What programs are you involved in based on semiconductors and packaging in those areas? So across the industry, and especially with, you know, we're doing uh, quite a bit of, of work from DARPA. I think that the Electronics Resurgence Initiative um, has been very beneficial to probably the entire industry, um, not just defense electronics, but all electronics, right? We've really been moving pretty uh, pretty quickly forward there. A lot of that is digital, but they do give an opportunity to support a lot of the back-end ARP and microwave, um, which is a lot of what we do between the three of us, right? Um, you know, it's something that I, I, I do have a note here to, that I've been pretty fascinated with is um, Microsystems Technology Office 
they're doing a, a broad number of new initiatives that support things like C4ISR and also electronic warfare. I think these are well mapped out in the way that this development actually does feed real programs in the future. Um, and it's very key. It's also a lot of that is um, incenting us to do uh, some work maybe we wouldn't have. Right? I think that's really good. And then finally, um, something that Brian and I probably talk a lot about is I, I have a big passion for sensors and how to sign up sensor business. Um, the Defense Science Office has actually initiated a lot of these sensor products that I think a lot of people aren't aware of, right? This is actually not just what the IoT world would call like edge node sensors and stuff, but how do you bring those in the defense space? Um, I think those are some pretty good programs we're doing. Yeah, and so we, we're very involved in these, you know, we talk about heterogeneous integration. There's a lot of uh, programs associated with that from DARPA, things like the CHIPS program and the SHIPS program around um, developing concepts of these chiplets and IP building blocks so that you can uh, um, so that you can modify designs more quickly, uh, reduce the design cycle, improve the uh, design uh, and evaluation tools, the modeling tools so that you get better first first pass success. Um, it's also around developing manufacturing capability. SHIPS is around building these uh, manufacturing sites in the U.S. that have this advanced packaging capability so that we can build on short capacity. And then, and it's around then the ability to take mixed mode, you know, gallium nitride, silicon, uh, gallium arsenide, and put them on a common, a common material so that you can really integrate uh, the best processes to develop the best product as quickly as possible. And so those are the program types of programs that we've been very engaged with. Yeah, that really is the future to getting high performance and reducing swap and cost. It's really, yeah. you know, the way of the future. It just hasn't been developed enough to be commercialized or used in too many programs yet. No, and it's interesting because um, because analog devices is such a broad and commercial and, and you know, we do commercial and defense kinds of work. The, the vision of DARPA, is really interesting because it, while it comes very early, it does pull along all these other commercial markets. And so we're talking about chiplets and heterogeneous integration in our comms business, in our automotive business, in our industrial business. While DARPA was was first with the vision, we are seeing these other markets uh, jumping on the bandwagon as well. So how about the Space Defense Agency? What programs are affecting A&D programs there? So I think, you know, the, the right now, I think they're well down the, well down the road, right, on, on transport layer, which is the first set of launches. You know, I think Derek and the team over there have done some outstanding work. I think, you know, there's a couple interesting opportunities as we're um, kind of at a crossroads for our part of the industry of how much of radiation tolerant electronics do we want to do? What do we put on orbit? Um, you know, where do we have to have things that guard lesser components? For example, do you have rad hard caring for rad tolerance? So I think that's a pretty, you know, it's pretty impressive. Uh, I think it's actually moving the industry forward pretty quickly. The next one is, you know, we start moving into sensing and tracking layer, right? And this is where I think um, an RF and microwave is going to become key, right? We're moving out of transport into detecting things like hypersonic missiles and other threats, Um I think that's going to be key. I think something else that they really started to do, though, it's probably more important, is they are demonstrating that our industry can be very quick and respond. Something that I think they've demonstrated and shown is more than cost 
a lot of the work they're doing is showing we can rapidly deploy capabilities uh, both on orbit. And the question I'd always like to challenge others about is how long is it going to take for that hits the rest of the industry? These long development programs that are 30 years to get to, to full rate production, you know, can we really do those anymore? I think we've shown a method and more importantly, probably a procurement mentality that leans to being very quick and nimble. So. Yeah, that's, you know, with all the things that you asked there, that I want to jump on that point, which is around the time to market, because it's really driving a new mindset, both time to market, but also expected cost is changing the mindset. And, and, and from our starting in the commercial world, you see these high volume Leo constellations going up, these SpaceX constellations. And the ability to uh, take full space-grade products, which Sean said it could have 52-week lead times on them to do all this custom screening, is really being challenged as to whether quality-wise and lifetime performance-wise, whether it's really needed. And so um, I think there are enough of these constellations and enough testing has been done to show that there are many applications that do not need that level of screening. And thus, the not only can the price and cost come down because there are a lot less work, but the... Um, the amount of uh, amount of screening that's required, and then the lead time, lead times can come down. Where we would get orders for you know thirty year life missions, where they would buy just enough, and then they'd come back three years and buy some more, rather than being able to anticipate building them all at once. And so now, with the higher volumes and the lower costs, there's this ability to build inventory that's not so overwhelming. And the expectation is that we release products much more quickly and that prototypes can go up because the costs are better. And um, we can be doing a lot more experimentation and a lot more uh, missions per year. And I think that's important. And, you know, I, I include that with, you think about we've really expanded the entire ecosystem of players that now can play in SDA. A lot of the people who are the prime contractors for SDA are familiar, two or three, but a lot of the people supplying antennas, supplying electronics, uh, supplying payloads are rather new to this market. So it's 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 pretty it's a pretty exciting expansion that we didn't have before. So yeah, as you say, it's been a big reset. You know, we have articles all the time on using cots for space, uh, yeah. light screening testing. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a big movement and really streamlined things. So speaking of that, for commercial space, is there any crossover with military you know, that will benefit your companies? on the commercial space and A&D? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in first. Um, so like I said, the commercial LEO market, for mostly for communications application, is taking off very, very quickly and has driven a new class of products for us. So we, we have broken down our space products now. First of all, plastic is now very, very prevalent. Pa plastic package, non-hermetic products are, are prevalent now. And so um, it's taken a lot of time for people to accept that. I'm very worried about reliability and outgassing and these types of things. We've, we've gotten past that. So we've created multiple uh, product categories. One is called our CSL product line, which is commercial space low, which is basically our commercial products from the catalog where we, where we can guarantee some, um, some radiation tolerance and we're also willing to provide lot traceability. And that's about the only difference between our commercial products and what we're calling commercial space low. 
And that is very acceptable for a lot of these shorter lifetime uh, applications. But on the other hand, we have another product family called Commercial Space High, which is still plastic products. A lot of these complicated products like our latest high-speed converters, very difficult to repackage into hermetic packages. Um, so we're getting acceptance that the plastic package is okay, but we're putting them through the full Class S, Class K screening, um, and we're calling that commercial space high, and we have a portfolio of those products. And so there's an expectation that we'll be releasing a lot more products uh, much more quickly and that there will be inventory on hand again to be able to lower the lead times. And I think that's important because that also feeds into other parts of the industry, right? The fact that you can quickly qualify electronics like that, again, it goes to reducing development time on big UW, our microwave or radar programs, right? Historically, these did. These took, these were 10, 15 year developments. Brian and I both know people in the industry, right? Who, who started on a program in the year 1980 and they're still working on the same program. Um, so I think this is this is started to move in a way that even things like DMEA qualifies and other the defense electronics groups is going to allow us to at least I like what you said Brian about like kind of develop and prototype get things out a lot quicker which I think threats in the world are going to demand we do that. Yeah, so. it changes quickly. Well, I've been very impressed with the OEMs like yourself who've become much more nimble. And yeah. you know, in the past, it never was even thought to do that. But now you right. have like fast labs and yeah. all these people, you know, doing commercial like um, processes for defense huh. and they've really changed the paradigm. Yeah. Now, I was just going to say, you, you see a lot of things that SpaceX did in the space industry and you, know, you asked about SDA, that's the kind of driver. Well, that same stuff, how, how long until you see a lot of capital investment into the rest of this industry? Um, in defense, right? Aviation might be the last one, right? They, they're they still going to have a lot of certifications and when human life is at, at risk, we're very careful. But I think the there's been a loosening of maybe the constraints um, in the rest of the defense industry. Well. And I think it gets into the cost per launch as well, has okay. really set a new expectation. There's a, there's, a, there's a willingness to take a bit more risk when your launch cost is dramatically less expensive. And so we kind of touched on this before, but there's a great shortage of circuit designers and there's really not enough talent to fill all the demand that we have for positions. And with the chip tax, it's even going to be worse. So how are you guys addressing that? You know, what type of innovative things are you doing to recruit people? Brian does ads. We have Brian do a lot more, uh, you know, the sporting uh, ads, sport, sports channel ads. So, you know, my co-host here is really famous. Um <laughs> So, but uh, no, actually, I think that there's something, uh, I, I think a lot about that. I think everybody who is in electronic warfare, RF and microwave, you know, any type of the harder electrical engineering disciplines, we're all, we're all struggling for, with this, right? One thing I do challenge people with is if you look at this as economic supply and demand, I'm not sure supply has actually gone down. I think supply in the last 20 years has actually come up. Demand has increased five to tenfold, and that's the issue. So actually, in all seriousness, Brian's done some good radio ads, and, and we've done some things in the past. Um, but I think that goes a long way to how we um, improve the situation. Two things that I think all of us need to really work on is we, even as far back as STEM, um, we're up against companies that are telling young kids they can develop virtual worlds and virtual universes. That's really hard to say, and you're making an RF in town, right? A monocle, it just, that's a, that's a tough putt sometimes. 
we've got to keep working to make it cool and show people that the work they do contributes to a very, very important mission. If we're just simply saying you're developing, you know, the next 5G system without understanding everything behind it, you're not going to have the dedication. I think that's one of them. I think something else that I've seen, uh, you know, a couple other organizations and a lot of us do is how we grow our own, right? Um, and this doesn't always mean that you have a guy with a PhD in electrical engineering coming in. This might be you get somebody who's separated from the military, who's got a two-year degree in electronics technology. You train him. Maybe does it even mean you send them to get a formal degree? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but also, I think most companies, you know, Brian and I talked about this in the past. We have our own master's programs. We have a lot of education programs. Um, but I still think we got to go back further in time. We got, you know, the twelve-year-old kid right now has got to be thinking it'd be the coolest thing in the world to be like Sean and Brian and Pat <laughs> and design RF and microwave. So no, he, he, you nailed it right there. And uh, this is actually an area that I'm probably more passionate about than anything. And so. We've put a lot of effort, and I personally put a lot of effort in this area. So for me, it's, it is it is getting back to the high schools and even the middle schools. And so, but it's about putting your money where your mouth is. And so we provide paid internships for high school students, as well as uh, college students starting from freshman year. And so we're bringing these interns in, and it's not just a three-month summer gig. It's about getting these folks in here, having them stay for multiple years, um, and then getting them to college and then getting them to come back. And it's not just engineers. It's folks in the manufacturing side as materials. well. Uh, materials. It's drafting. It's, it's test yeah. technicians. All of these things. We need to We need to be um, building up the enthusiasm, like you said, about the aerospace and defense industry because it is super cool. The stuff that we do, it's very broad and it's very cool. It's yeah. high, cutting-edge technology. Um, so it starts with the internships. But it is, it's about getting into the universities and there are certain skills uh, that require uh, beyond a bachelor's degrees. And going into the master's and PhD programs, you find a lot of non-US persons uh, in the grad schools. And a lot of it is because of financial. And so the schools will tell you the government needs to do more, industry needs to do more. Yeah. Universities need to, uh, need to lean in as well. But we have, at Analog Devices, we've set up a couple of uh, very interesting programs. I've got a program um, in my aerospace and defense group where I am taking early career individuals and I am sending them back for their master's degree at University of Massachusetts at Lowell. And they're going back full-time students and working for me 15, 20 hours a week. Um, and I'm paying them still full salary. We are investing heavily. And so far, uh, we've put about 12 into this program and so this is a yearly event and um, the other thing that we're doing so that's getting me skills like rf microwave um, as well as uh, software and digital types of skills but i also need high-speed converter another data converter technology another one it's very difficult to find in the university systems in the curriculums so this is a program where we're actually set up our own internal program which is going to start in fy 23 where we're actually bringing in our fellows and our lead technologists, and they're going to be teaching class on high-speed converters. And we started recruiting our first college class uh, to enter that program next summer. And the, and the other thing is there there are also uh, there's also industry uh, groups that are getting together. The mass the mass semiconductor coalition, we're a founding member, is looking at internship programs around high school students and early career. And so 
we're doing things on our own, but we're also joining the industry folks uh, to get together because it's an industry-wide problem. Well, so I ask you a challenging question, right? Has been there's been talk about do we actually break electrical engineering with the subgroups, right? Do we actually maybe start the specialization sooner, right? Um, do we maybe reduce some of the requirements they have to take in other areas? This is something that I think a lot of people are starting to talk about. Many of us with engineering degrees, right? It was a five-year, six-year, and you know, the, it's, people are starting to take the hard look of was that curriculum completely needed? Another thing is, is, is how can you use technicians or people with two-year degrees? Um, very focused. Are they going to maybe be like Brian said, your your PhD guy? Probably not. But on the other hand, um, does it fill a very critical role? Um, especially like Pat, you mentioned some of the test stuff. Some of the best people I've seen design tests are not my engineering team. These guys are figuring it out, and a lot of times they have the same knowledge base that the rest of the, the group does as well. So, no, it's a, it's, a, it's an interesting point on on the university curriculum because these things that require master's degree um, you're starting to get specialized and a lot of these students know that they want to be specialized much earlier yeah. and, I, and I like your I like your thoughts on certainly there were things in my curriculum that I've never touched again like I don't think I've ever programmed in Fortran <laughs> well, you know, I myself now. So now you can figure out how old I am. But you know, I, I've, I've never actually used my my uh, my 400 level course in world communication broadcast systems either. So, you know, or you know, our architectural appreciation really hasn't helped me. No, so it's a very stuff, good you know. point. Could we get yeah. students out with four year degrees that don't need to go back for a master's degree? Correct. They... And I guess I'll, I'll reemphasize the last one is you know how do you work with you know uh, in aerospace and defense? One of the challenges we have is we have to have U.S. people. But also a lot of our people have to get cleared to do really serious work. Um, you know, the other thing is to continue working with the military services. Um, and this is probably in its infancy as to how we actually make sure there's a transition plan for them, possibly again, to get from somebody who spent four years in the military, enlisted, how they become an engineer and move in the engineering field. So, and there's, and, and those are some of the best people because they, they have the work experience and the work skills. Okay, great. Thanks for uh, this first podcast. I think yeah. it went very well. Thank you so much for uh, your insights in the semiconductor technology and supply issues that we're addressing today. So I'm really looking forward to this. It will be a monthly podcast approximately, and we'll be doing it from all year next year. And uh, I think we'll see how it goes. And we promise we'll argue more in the future. Yeah, I know. There wasn't much debate here. Yeah. I guess yeah. it's agreeable. But there was a lot of BS. There was a lot of BS. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Pat. I appreciate it. Okay, so to our listeners, if there are any topics you want us to cover or any comments, please let us know. You can email me at phindle at mwjournal.com. Thanks for listening today and keep an eye out for our next episode.